I read something several years ago. It said the number of suicides dramatically increases during the holiday season. It seems that hopelessness abounds during this time of the year. Some of the hopelessness could come from being alone. Some could come from the end of the year, reminding them of all the things they didn't accomplish during the year. For some, the hopelessness comes uh, comes from thinking their life has no meaning. And I guess the hopelessness could come from all sorts of reasons. But in the end, it can have the same destructive effects regardless of the reason. But for Christians, this time of the year should be the most hopeful time of all. It is this time of the year that remember the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in the life and death of Jesus that that we have hope. The hope that we have in Jesus, it should produce a passion in our lives. We should be passionate about our relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, I think that should be one of the main priorities of our lives. The reason is that if we have a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ, it leads to passion in other areas of our lives, particularly our spiritual lives. You read the Psalms and you find David was passionate about his worship of God. Why? Because he had a passionate relationship with his God. The first century believers, when you read the book of Acts, were passionate in their service to Christ. Why? Because they had a passionate relationship with Christ. Apathy, complacency, being content with the status quo are all signs of passionless, stagnant relationship with Christ. And there are, I guess, many things that could lead to this. And there are probably many things that could address this. But I think, in my mind, the cure for this is is really seeing a clear picture of Christ. When we see who He is and what He does, it, it makes our minds race and our hearts soar. It reminds us of what He has done for us and what He is doing in us. And this gives us hope. This gives us passion. This makes us excited about our relationship with God. Today we're going to look at an Old Testament passage of Scripture where God peels back the curtain and lets a group of people who were discouraged and overwhelmed with what He wanted them to do to see a picture of Jesus, to see what He would do for them. And God gave them this vision to encourage them, to motivate them, to make them passionate about their relationship with Him. Open your Bible to Zechariah chapter 3. It's page 721 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Zechariah 3 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand to oppose him. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And when he answered and he spoke to those who were stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you and will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. But the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my commandment, then you shall also judge my house. And likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you. For they are a wondrous sign, 
For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon this stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under a vine and under his fig tree. The title of the message is Seeing Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We gather, Lord, with a desire to be passionate with you. God, we know that we're supposed to be, Lord, just excited always about our worship and our service to you. But Lord, we live in a world where difficult things happen. We live in a world where much pushes against that. And God, it's easy for us to to let apathy and complacency and the status quo reign in our lives. God, it is shamefully easy to let those things happen. God, we know this isn't how it's supposed to be, and we know that this isn't what we want it to be. And what we need, God, is to see Jesus clearly. We need, Father, to to see Him for who He is and what He's done, and and let that just sink into our hearts and to our minds and and bring great change into our lives. So today, as we look at this, this picture of Jesus that You've given us from the Old Testament, God, speak to us through this. Draw us closer to you in this, God. Let it just inspire us in our love and our service and our devotion to you, Father. Let it draw us closer to you and let, us, let it make us in awe of you and just bow before you in, in humble adoration and submission, God. Oh, Father, fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words in your ways and that you would be glorified in all that happens. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in this passage, it doesn't, at first glance, the first six or seven verses really don't seem like we're looking at Jesus. It looks like we're talking about a, a dude named Joshua and some things that are going on there. But if you look at this further, I think we do see a picture of Jesus in this, right? We see in verse 8, uh, Joshua, here Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. So what's going on in these first six or seven verses? It's more than what we see in those first six or seven verses. It is a a sign or a symbol of something that is to come. Now, Joshua is the high priest. And the priests around him are others that are mentioned and carried in this passage. And in the book of Hebrews, we are repeatedly told that Jesus is our great high priest. We also see in verse 8 that God is, that they are a wondrous sign, and that sign points to someone that God is bringing forth, someone that He calls my servant and the branch. Now, both of these terms were messianic symbols. Both were ones that were used to describe the coming Messiah. Uh, most familiar probably with Isaiah 53 is a messianic passage that speaks of Jesus as a suffering for our sins that we could be forgiven. And throughout that passage, the Messiah is simply referred to as my servant, says the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11, it refers to one who would come from the family of King David and sit upon his throne. This one would rest upon the throne of David. The Spirit of the Lord would be upon him. He would judge and act fairly. He would be a banner of salvation to the world. And under his rule, there would be such peace and harmony that the the calves and the yearlings would be safe among the lions. And this person was referred to as the branch. And then in verse 9, we're told that through this servant, the branch, God will remove the sins of the land in a single day. Of course, That is very clearly speaking of Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. I also believe 
that the angel of the Lord spoken of in this passage is the pre-incarnate Christ. Right? In theological terms, this is called a Christophany. And the idea is that we remember that Jesus didn't come into existence one night in Bethlehem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Jesus has always existed. So there are instances in the Old Testament where, where there is a, a being called the angel of the Lord who comes and he speaks as God himself. He has the authority of God himself. And the people who meet with him, they treat him as though he is God himself. And I'm convinced that every instance in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord, it is Jesus prior to the incarnation of the New Testament. And so all throughout this passage... We see Jesus working with Joshua. We see a prophecy of what Jesus would do. And what Jesus is doing with Joshua is a picture of what Jesus would do in us and through us in our day today. Uh, and it's neat the way God lays it out. In verses 1 through 7, we're given this preview of what Jesus would do. What we have to look forward to. What Zechariah and Joshua and the others had to look forward to. And then he presents the, the big event described in the preview. So verses 1 through 7, this is a picture of what will be. Verses 8 through 10 tell us when this day will come. And this day, when all of the other things will be fulfilled, is in the day when the Messiah comes and he takes our sin upon him. And he dies and he rises again. And in a nutshell, that's kind of the picture of Jesus that we see in Zechariah chapter 3. Now, one of the interesting things is that in Zechariah, when you read it and study it, you find out the people are sort of discouraged and they're sort of overwhelmed. Right? They have recently returned from Babylonian exile. Some of them have. And they are tasked with rebuilding the temple. Now, if you've read the Old Testament and you've read about the story of King Solomon, you know that the temple was pretty magnificent. It was big. It was golden. It was just it was impressive to behold. And here these refugees are tasked with rebuilding the temple. And they have very few resources. They have very few people. And they are tasked to rebuild something that Solomon had like an entire nation and other nations to help build. Well, they begin to build and it goes on longer than they imagined it should. And over a period of time when they had kind of thought it would be rebuilt, all they had laid was the temple. Or all they had laid was the foundation of the temple. And not only that, as they laid the foundation of the temple and as they kind of began to celebrate that, there were some who looked at the foundation and they wept. And they wept because the temple wasn't going to be as big as it had been. It wasn't going to be as magnificent as it was before. And so the people in Zechariah's day, they were discouraged that their best wouldn't be as good as it had been in the past. They were overwhelmed because the job that was before them, they, they just felt that it was bigger than anything they could possibly accomplish on their own. And it was producing apathy. It was producing hopelessness. They were beginning to give up and, and not really try. Because what's the point? It won't be as good as it was. And I don't know that we could do it anyway. And so in the midst of this people that are discouraged and kind of beat down, God sends a message of hope. 
And the message of hope is not necessarily something that's going to be now, but something that would be in the future. And that hope is in the coming Messiah and who he would be and what he would do. And you know, I've noticed that it's easy in life to get overwhelmed by all that needs to be done. Because there's a lot that needs to be done in our lives, in our service to Jesus, and in just raising families and living lives. It's often difficult. It can be overwhelming. And at times, we can get discouraged at at how little progress we seem to be making. And how ineffective we feel that we are. And when we get that way, we become apathetic. We do become discouraged. We, we do kind of begin to wonder, what's the point? Why try? My best isn't good enough anyway. And I, I think it's safe to say that we have all experience this in one way or another. Like the people of Zechariah's day, we need to see Jesus for who He is. And we need to be reminded of what He's done so that it will encourage us and motivate us to keep going. Seeing this, it will produce a great passion for Jesus in our lives. So the idea that I want us to understand, the main idea, and I want to click my clicker, but that doesn't work today, is that seeing Jesus changes everything. That seeing Jesus changes everything. When we truly see Jesus for who He is, and when we truly see what He has done, it will change us, and it will produce a passion for us in our lives. A passion for Him in our lives. And in this passage, Jesus' work and who He is and what He's done is expressed in three ways. The first is that Jesus becomes my advocate. Jesus becomes my advocate. Chapter 3 and verse 1, we're given a kind of a heavenly courtroom scene. Right? We have God as the judge. We have Satan as the prosecuting attorney. And Joshua as the defendant. And he says that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So Satan is opposing him. And, and kind of the idea what we should get is that he is accusing him of things. He is pointing out faults and failures and things like that. Now, I think that Joshua represents there more than Josh Joshua. Right? Verse 2, it refers to that the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Right? That they are a, a brand plucked out of the fire. Right? And so I think Joshua is representative of the nation of Judah as a whole. And what Satan is doing is he is accusing Joshua the high priest and the nation of Judah as a whole of sins and failures. And if that's an accurate representation of what's going on here, his accusations are true. Because when you read the Old Testament, you find that Judah blows it over and over again. They don't just blow it in little ways. They blow it in big ways. They blow it with God begging them not to blow it. They reject and resist and turn away from God and do whatever they want to do. Satan, at this point, he doesn't have to make anything up. He can simply point at them and say, they did this, they did that. And it would all be accurate. It would be so very true. But as Satan begins to oppose, as he begins to accuse 
says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand uh, plucked from the fire? Jerusalem had blown it lots of ways. They had been punished for their sins. They had been sent away into judgment. God had then pulled them back from judgment, set them up, and established them. And as Satan accuses them, somebody stands up for them. And it's the Lord. And, and I like what he says. Uh, because God doesn't try to minimize their sins. Uh, he doesn't say, well, yeah, they did it, but it wasn't that big of a deal. God doesn't say that. God doesn't say to Satan, well, it was a long time ago and time has passed and the statute of limitations has ran out. He doesn't say that. He, he doesn't really even deny the accusations in any way. He doesn't defend them by saying they're not that bad. Instead, what he does is he says, I've chosen them. I've punished them and now I've saved them. And I'll no longer hear your accusations against them. It's not that the accusations are false. It's that they're irrelevant. Because God has chosen them and God has saved them. The Bible teaches that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Who accuses us before God day and night. And if we are anything like Jerusalem, he doesn't have to make anything up. Right? He doesn't have to make stuff up about us. He can accuse us for our past failures. He can accuse us for our current struggles. He can accuse us for the things presently going on in our lives. And they will be accurate. Because we're flawed. And we fail. And we've blown it. And, and the thing is... We sin and we mess up. But we have someone who speaks in our defense. We have someone that stands up for us. First John chapter two, verses one and two says, my brethren, I write these things to you that you do not sin. Now, that is the standard for every believer. We do not sin. This is what God wants for us. This is what God wants in us, is that we would be holy in our lives. Now, John is writing to counteract false doctrine. There were false teachers who were saying that all that matters is your spirit and your body doesn't matter. So you can live however you want to in your life. And the sin in your life, it doesn't say anything about your relationship with God. It doesn't say anything about what you believe. It doesn't say anything about whether or not you have eternal life. Chapter 1, John writes and said that is simply not the case. That if you walk in darkness and profess to be in the light, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And so he writes that we, we should not sin. Now with that, there is the implication that as believers we can not sin. Now, that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are free from slavery to our sinful nature and we have the ability... To choose to do right when the temptation to do wrong is before us. And that is always there. So the, the goal, the standard is that we do not sin because we have been freed from slavery to our sin. But, John goes on to say, but if any of you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I see, John lives in the real world. He lives in the same world that we live in. 
He knows what it is to struggle with sin. He knows what it is to give in to your sinful nature because the apostles were not really any different than we are. They had struggles. They knew failure. They made the same sorts of mistakes that we do. And the Bible, while telling us that a believer can not sin, at the same time tells us that many times believers will sin. Many times we will blow it. Many times we will mess up in terrible, terrible ways and give Satan ammunition to accuse us before God. But Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one who speaks on our behalf. He is the one who pleads our case to the heavenly judge. That is a good thing. Now, this doesn't minimize sin by any stretch of the imagination. This doesn't make our sin light or not important. The sin of a believer is every bit as bad as the sin of an unbeliever. In fact, I, I contend that it may be worse because we know Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And we are still choosing to sin and do what sent Him to the cross. But even when we sin, Jesus is for us. He is our advocate. And, and He is the righteous one. That's why He can be our advocate. That's why he can stand before God and plead our case. Right? Because of all that have ever lived, Jesus alone perfectly fulfilled God's law. Jesus alone did everything God wanted him to do without fail. And so he pleads for us. But it's important that we understand what he pleads. When Jesus pleads our case to God, when Satan accuses us, he does not plead our own righteousness. He doesn't say they're, they're pretty good. He, he doesn't plead anything that we have done, our good works, our, our morals, or anything like that. Instead, he pleads himself. Because John goes on to say that Jesus is not only the righteous one, but he is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. Now, the word propitiation basically means an atoning sacrifice. And the idea is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins have been paid for completely, fully. And when Jesus pleads on our behalf, he doesn't try to deny Satan's allegations. He doesn't try to say, no, they really didn't do it or it's not that bad. What he says is, yes, they did it, but I've already taken the punishment for that sin. I have already paid the penalty they deserve. They are free. From condemnation. So I mean, do you, you really believe that Jesus is your advocate? That Jesus is on your side? I mean, that is huge. Right? I mean, I was raised in good churches, I think. Good preachers. Godly men who preach the Bible. But in their zeal for holiness... And in their zeal for righteousness, they often presented a God that was out to get me. Who even once I believed that the smallest misstep, boom, I was done. That is not the Bible, my friends. That is not the Savior we serve. The standard is that we not sin, but if we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is on your side as a believer 
in Jesus. And He is on your side when you're faithful and you're true and you do what is right. And He is on your side when you blow it in small ways and when you blow it in enormous ways. Jesus is always your advocate. Listen, if you want to be excited about your relationship with Jesus Christ, consider the idea that He is always for you as a believer and never against you. Consider the idea that when you sin, He says, I've already paid it. No, they will not be punished for that. Consider that He is always calling us to Himself. That He is always saying, turn from that and come back to Me. And man, that... When you see Jesus as your advocate, that'll change everything. Jesus becomes our advocate. Secondly, Jesus makes me a new creation. In verse 3, it says Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, standing before the angel. When they were in exile, there really wasn't a high priest or a priesthood. It kind of dissolved. When they were brought back to Jerusalem, the priesthood was restored. But the priests weren't really all that great. They really didn't do all the things that they should have done. They didn't complete the standards that God gave them. And so here's Joshua, the high priest, guilty. And it says he is clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel. But the garments, there's more to the garments than just the clothes. But the garments are representative again, because it goes on and says in verse 4, Therefore he answered and spoke to those who stood before them, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you and, have, and will clothe you with these rich robes. And I said, Let them also put a clean turban on his head. So they put a turban on his head and put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. See, the, clean, the dirty clothes were symbolic of the sin in his life. And all of the things that were wrong with him and his attitudes, his actions, his priorities. And he, that was not, it was not an effective way to minister before the Lord. Right? The high priest went into the holy place. The high priest burned incense before the Lord. The high priest had a pretty significant job in the world. And ministering in filthy clothes wasn't acceptable. Not in a similar way. The high priest, above all people, should have been holy. The high priest was meant to be an example of what it meant to live for God and to serve God and to follow God. So a life of sin, it wasn't wasn't for him. And so the Lord who had chosen him and the Lord who had saved him changed him. It wasn't that Joshua changed himself. It wasn't that Joshua made himself different. It was God. It was God who gave him the clean clothes. It was God who dressed him richly. It was God who gave him the turban. It was God who did all of these things and made him different. Joshua would not be the same when he went back to minister before the Lord again. In a similar way. Naturally. We are all wearing filthy clothes. Naturally, we're all as an unclean thing. Naturally, our sins and our iniquities have carried us away. Naturally, our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. 
And there's nothing we can do about that on our own. There's nothing that we can do to fix the problem we have. God has to change us. That's why the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. See, Christians, we're not rehabilitated. We're not re-educated. Right? We haven't turned over a new leaf and determined to be better. We have been changed. We have been transformed by the power of Almighty God. We are different because of His work in our lives. Let me tell you some of the things that, is, that are different about us because of God's work in our lives. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says that God gives us a new heart and new and right desires. I love that. Because before we trusted in Christ, we had hard hearts that were rebellious against God. Right? Can, can anyone say, yes, that was me? That was me. That was honestly me. Right? Ray Comfort says that prior to conversion, unbelievers have as much desire for righteousness as a five-year-old boy has for a bath. Amen. That's exactly right. But when we're saved, a radical transformation takes place and we're given a new heart with new desires. That's why we want to do God's will. That's why it grieves us when we fail. That's why there's a desire to live holy. A desire to read our Bible. A desire to to help others come to know Jesus. All of these things are a part of what God is doing in our lives. God has changed us and He has made us new. We're given a new citizenship. Philippians 3, 18-21 and Colossians 2, 13. The Bible teaches that there are two distinct kingdoms in the world. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. The Bible also teaches that apart from Christ, we are all part of the kingdom of darkness. But once we trust in Jesus Christ, God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. From the moment that we believe in Jesus, we become dual citizens. Citizens of earth, citizens of heaven. We're also given a new nature. Ephesians 4, 20-24. The Bible teaches that before we trusted in Christ, our nature was corrupt, controlled by the passions and desires of our sinful nature. And it was just getting worse as time goes on. But after we trusted in Jesus Christ, we were given a new nature that is consistently and continually being transformed so that we can become more and more like Jesus. God is always at work in us as believers, always working to help us become like Jesus. We have a new nature that enables us to grow in godliness and grow in Christ-likeness. And it should be happening all of the time. And then we also are given a new righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The holy, sinless Son of God took our sins on Himself. And he died to pay the penalty that our our sins deserved. So that as a result, we could then be the righteousness of God in Christ. And again, I think this is something that is difficult for us to grasp. At least it is for me. Because I know me. And I know that on my best day, I'm not all that great. But you know, God doesn't see me as not all that great. 
God doesn't see me in light of my past and my sins and my failures. God sees me as His Son. He sees me as righteous because of Jesus. I mean, the way the Bible teaches righteousness because of Christ, it's as though we had not sinned. It's as though we had perfectly kept the law because Jesus kept it in our place. I mean, how... How different would your life be if you really believed that you were genuinely, truly, and wholly righteous in Christ? That your standing before God was not based upon your goodness and your deeds. It was based upon Christ and what He has done. That in Christ you are a new creation. That in Christ you have a righteousness that is not your own. That in Christ you are not a part of the kingdom of this world. That in Christ you have a new nature and you can be like Jesus. That, that in Christ you have an inheritance. That in Christ you're different. You are legitimately different than you were before. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So I don't want to be like I was before. I know how I was before I was saved. And that is not the person I want to be. I want to be different. I want to be like Jesus. And if we want to be encouraged and passionate in our relationship with Jesus, we need to see Him as the one who makes us something new. The one who makes us different. The one who does it. Not not the one that just helps us. But He does so much of that. He just does it. Believe it. Live it. And seeing Jesus as the one who makes you as a new creation changes everything. So we want to see Jesus as our advocate because Jesus becomes our advocate. Then Jesus makes me a new creation. And then finally, Jesus gives me purpose. Jesus gives me purpose. In verse 6, it says, The angel of the Lord said, or admonish Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Now notice the conditional nature of these promises. If you do this, then this is what I will do for you. Right? If, and the condition is obedience. If you walk in my ways... And keep my commandments. Right? Joshua is given a charge. He is given a command. Be faithful to do what I've told you to do. Right? The, the commandments in my ways basically would be the law. Which laid out all aspects of life of Israel. It told the high priest what to do. How to dress. How to make sacrifices. All of these kinds of things. It was all kind of a big deal. So God said, if you will do this. If you will be faithful to do this. Then... You shall judge my house, have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. And I think there's a, a dual aspect to what it means here. I think on the one hand, the judge my house, charge of my courts, and give you places to walk among those who stand here, I think it refers to his job as the high priest. His job as the high priest was to make sacrifices. He was to go into the most holy place with the blood of the animals that was made on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle it before on the Holy Seat or on the Mercy Seat. 
And so, if he would keep the commandments of the Lord, he would get to continue to be the high priest. He would get to continue to be over the temple and to be the one who makes the sacrifices and do these things. I also, though, because at the end he says, I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Now, again, this is kind of a heavenly courtroom scene. So those who stand here, part of the ones that are standing there are, are angels. Right? And so I think another part of what we're seeing here is that he would be given a place to serve, but he would also get access to God. Because as he went into the most holy place to sprinkle on the atonement seat, to sprinkle the atonement on the mercy seat, he, he went into what they considered to be the very presence of God, the only person that got to do that. And I think there is a promise that he gets to do, be with God in this life, but then he'll get to go and be with God in the life to come. And the idea is that he will get to serve God, and as he serves God, he'll get to be with God. This, this I think, refers to genuine access to God. True relationship. As he serves the Lord, he gets to experience the presence of the Lord. It's important to understand that, that God has always dealt with, uh, dealt with his people in this way. But God is always a God that says, go here and I'll go with you. Do this and I'll help you. If you obey me, you will get to experience me in ways others do not. Let me show you this. Turn to Joshua chapter 1. Verse 5, page 168. Joshua is being called to take over the leadership mantle from Moses to lead the people into the promised land. And God says to him some things as God calls him. He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Um, God's promising he will be victorious because God would be with him. Be strong and have a good courage. For this people you shall divide an inheritance in the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. And notice this, that you may observe to do all that the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That you may observe to do all, uh, observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And there's a lot to see here. One thing to notice is he was going to have to be strong and courageous in order to do what God wanted him to do. But what I think is interesting is that strength and courage is connected to obedience to the word. Be strong and courageous to observe to do all according to the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand, to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Right? Be, be strong and courageous to obey my word and do the things that I've commanded. Why would he have to be strong and courageous to be obedient to God in a nation that's supposed to be dedicated to God? <laughs> because this nation that was dedicated to God often revolted against God and often threatened to stone the leaders who spoke for God. So be strong and courageous and obey my word, even if they don't like it. 
Be strong and courageous to obey my word, even if everyone turns against you and they're threatening to stone you. Now, what does that mean for us? It means if we're going to follow Jesus and do the things that he wants us to do, we have to be strong and courageous. Right? Because Jesus asks us to walk by faith. Jesus asks us to take up our crosses and follow him. Jesus asks us to leave our comfort zone. Jesus asks us to do things that we believe are far beyond our capabilities. Jesus always asks us to do things that will make us slightly uncomfortable for one reason or another. And in order to be faithful to do that, we have to be strong, courageous. We have to keep it up. Secondly, another thing to notice is that as he was obedient, he would be successful. But along these lines, God defined what success was. Right? If you observe it, then you may prosper wherever you go. If you observe to do according to all that's written, then I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, interestingly, though, as God defines success here, it was just in obedience. Right? In, in, in the way God works and understands things, success isn't as much in the results as in the actions. Right? If we see lots of results, but we've done it in disobedient ways, that's not a success in God's sight. Right? Take, for instance, church. God wants to see people come to church and be saved, right? What if we offered pole dancers for people to come? Would that be thrilling and pleasing to God even if thousands of people came? No, of course not. Disobedience that leads to something that appears to be success, it's not success in God's eyes. Success in God's eyes is just doing what He said, even if we don't see the results we want to see. If you do what God wants you to do, whatever that is, if you do it, you're successful, even if you don't see any earthly results from that action. As far as God is concerned, you have prospered, you were successful because you were strong and courageous to obey. And then the final thing is that God goes with us. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of a good courage. Not be afraid or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. No one would be able to stand against Joshua throughout the battles that he fought. Why? Because God would be on his side. God would be with him. Jesus has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Everything that Jesus does in our life, that he wants us to do, he always goes with us. I mean, think about that. Jesus gives us an idea to do something, whether it's something straight from God's Word that we're to be obedient to or something He leads us to accomplish. He doesn't then bring that to our mind and say, go and do that and I'll see you on the other side. Instead, He says, come with me and I'll help you get this done. He always helps us. He always enables us. He always gives us the strength and the power that we need to do whatever it is. That he wants us to do in our lives. I mean, that's great. So God gives us a, Jesus gives us a purpose, something to live for and something to do. And then he goes with us as we do it and he empowers us to make it happen. How great is that? Man, I mean, if you want to be excited about your relationship with Jesus, realize that you have a God-given purpose for your life. That there is something that you are supposed to do for the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's pretty awesome to think about. And as you do it, he'll go with you. And as you do it, he'll help you 
to get it done. And as long as you're faithful to do what he said to do, you're successful. You cannot fail as a follower of Jesus Christ unless you fail to act. As long as you do what he's told you to do, you have been successful. You have been victorious. And there are rewards based upon your faithfulness and your obedience, not upon the results that came from it. Man, if you get a hold of Jesus as the one who does all of that, and you see him as the one who does all of that, it changes everything. It'll change the way we view and the way we live and the way we act. I ask you, how would you describe your relationship to Jesus? Would you describe it as passionate or apathetic? Would you say that you're zealous to serve the Lord? Or you just kind of do the bare minimums to get by to keep Him from breaking your legs and burning down your house? Listen, we should never be apathetic. We should never be half-hearted. We should never strive for the bare minimum. And if that characterizes our relationship with Jesus, we, we ought to see that something ain't right. Something is not as it should be. And if you've recognized that something is not as it should be with that today, you have a choice. You can feel sorry for yourself. And you can say, woe is me. I just stink at this whole Christian thing. Oh, that's just it. That's never any good. And then you can go out staying like that. But let me make something clear to you. That won't fix anything. You'll still be apathetic. You'll still be half-hearted. You'll not change anything because you feel sorry for yourself. That's just a form of pride. That just says it's all about me. If you've realized something is wrong in your relationship with Jesus, let that drive you to Jesus. Let that drive you to the cross where you confess it and say, This is truth, Jesus. This is how I feel. And I don't want to feel this way anymore. I don't want to be apathetic. I don't want to be half-hearted. Please help me. That'll make a difference. That will change things. If things are not as they should be in your relationship with Jesus, then in this time of response, go to Jesus. Confess it and ask for His help to change it. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.